Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. A year ago, on January 20th, 2017, President Donald Trump was inaugurated as the 45th President of the United States. His presidency has raised a host of constitutional questions, and in this one-year episode, we look back on the first year of the Trump presidency and what it means for the U.S. Constitution. Joining us to discuss this fascinating year of constitutional debate are two of America's leading scholars of constitutional law. Josh Blackman is Associate Professor of Law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. He filed an amicus brief in Crew versus Trump and DC and Maryland versus Trump and is a prolific and illuminating commentator on constitutional questions. Lisa Mannheim is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law and co-author of the recently published book, which I have just kindled and you should too. It is called The Limits of Presidential Power, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Josh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, uh, having us at the, today's conversation. Wonderful, let us jump right in to the first question, which involves the foreign and domestic emoluments clause. Josh, you have filed a brief in the crew case and you have commented on it. Tell us what the latest status of the various lawsuits alleging that President Trump has violated both the foreign and domestic emoluments clause are and what you think the merits of the suits are. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure to be on your program. <clears throat> the Constitution has two provisions as concerning the president. One prohibits him from receiving emoluments from uh, state governments, and the second prohibits him, or, or prohibits someone at least, from accepting emoluments from foreign governments. Uh, shortly after the inauguration, a number of lawsuits are filed alleging that the president is violating both of these provisions uh, because of his business interests uh, in, in Trump Tower and Trump the Hotel and all these other uh, properties. That is, because these businesses deal with foreign nations and with state governments, uh, President Trump is accepting illegal foreign emoluments. Uh, I have the honor of filing a brief on behalf of Professor Seth Barrett-Tillman, who's a scholar in Ireland, arguing that the president does not uh, hold office under the United States and thus is not bound by the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Uh, so far, of the three lawsuits filed, one of them has already been decided. A federal judge in Manhattan uh, dismissed the case on what's known as standing grounds. That is, that the parties who brought the lawsuit were not injured by the president's business interests. There is a second case brought by the District of Columbia in Maryland. That will be argued on Thursday, January 25th. Uh, I will be there for the arguments. There's a third case brought by 200 members of Congress. Um, this case is uh, also concerning the emoluments clause. Uh, that case hasn't been scheduled for argument time, uh, and I don't know if the judge will. He may resolve it on the uh, papers, on the briefs. Uh, but so far, this litigation has not gone the plaintiff's way. Uh, we'll see if it happens uh, differently in the uh, Maryland case. Thank you so much for that illuminating summary of the cases. Uh, Lisa, many of the judges who have considered it have ruled against the challengers on grounds that they lack standing, namely that there was no concrete injury from 
President Trump's business. Uh, what do you think of the merits of the suits? Uh, is there standing to bring them? And has the president violated the domestic or foreign emoluments clauses? In lawsuits like these, there are always a, a number of legal questions presented. And um, one, two of the most important that are presented here are first, uh, you know, is President Trump violating the Constitution, which goes to the merits. Um, but then the second question is, is even if he is violating the Constitution, is this the sort of case that a court can hear and resolve? Um, and when it comes to something like the emoluments clauses, both those questions pose very tricky uh, uh, legal issues for the courts to deal with. Um, and and so I guess I would say two things with respect to that. Uh, first, the lawyers that are that are working um, on behalf of these plaintiffs are very good, and the arguments that they are developing are are very strong. Um, the arguments on the other side are are also persuasive um, in many respects. But there's a reason why I'm sort of punting here, and the reason why I'm punting is because. Generally speaking, when we try to analyze legal issues, we look to things like the text of the Constitution, um, we look to things like Supreme Court precedents, and here the text of the Constitution is ambiguous when it comes to the, uh, the, the relevant questions on the one hand, and on the other hand, there is almost no Supreme Court precedent when it comes to, for example, the merits of this lawsuit. Um, and if, you, if you're wondering why there's no precedent here, it's because this is not the sort of issue that prior pres presidents um, have allowed to come to the fore. So, um, for example, if we take President Obama, uh, he was worried about an emoluments controversy that might have arisen when he accepted uh, a prize by the, the Nobel Pre Peace Prize Committee. And so as a result, he had his lawyers look through these legal issues and to try to figure out if there was an argument that accepting that prize would possibly violate one of the emoluments clauses. And he didn't accept the award until his lawyers um, uh, concluded to his satisfaction that it wouldn't. Uh, by contrast, President Trump is not exercising that sort of restraint. And so as a result, these really difficult legal issues are now being kicked to the courts. Thank you so much for that. Well, listeners who want a full sense of the argument should read the briefs and can check out uh, Josh Blackman's brief with Seth Barrett Tillman in United States District Court uh, versus uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, let's turn next to the travel ban case. Uh, just recently, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the latest incarnation of the travel ban case uh, and will decide by June whether or not the travel ban violates both statutory and possibly uh, constitutional law. Josh, what's uh, significant about the court's decision to hear the latest version of the travel ban case uh, and what will be new in its consideration of this case, uh, in particular the constitutional issues uh, that it has failed to decide so far? So um, the travel ban is like the, uh, the case that goes on and on and on and never seems to end. Uh, the first version of the travel ban was announced uh, roughly one year ago this week. Uh, we call travel ban 1.0. Um, the courts quickly halted that, and the president, instead of appealing to the Supreme Court, withdrew it. He then issued travel ban 2.0. Uh, there, too, the lower courts halted it. Uh, he did seek a stay from the Supreme Court, and to the surprise of many, the Supreme Court granted a partial stay. That is, he allowed part of it to go into effect. But version 2.0 was always temporary. That was never the final version. The final version was version 3.0, which is now halted by the lower courts. Um, to the surprise of some, not me, uh, the Supreme Court granted this case on a fairly uh, expedited basis, and they will consider it this year. 
they could have uh, delayed the case a little bit, perhaps kicked it to the following term, but by moving as quickly as they did, they signaled they want to resolve the travel ban issue now. Uh, so now the courts will uh, here at the end of, our, uh, end of March, beginning of April, um, and get this one uh, on the docket pretty quick. Great. So, Lisa, when the justices agreed to hear the case uh, recently, the uh, they agreed to decide whether the travel ban 3.0, as Josh calls it, uh, violates uh, federal uh, immigration law or federal procedural rules. The constitutional question was added. Tell us about the claim that travel ban 3.0 violates the establishment clause of the First Amendment, which bars the government from discriminating among religions. How is that claim fared in lower courts and reading the tea leaves from separate statements by Justices Gorsuch and others, how might the U.S. Supreme Court resolve the constitutional questions? So the Supreme Court will be looking at all of the different challenges that the, the plaintiffs are bringing in this case, or at least they will um, uh, reserve ultimate judgment on the case until all of those different uh, uh, claims are, are aired and resolved. Um, and what this means is that um, the, the court is is going to be uh, looking to the Establishment Clause claim if the plaintiffs cannot prevail on their, their claim based on statute. Um, the, the Establishment Clause claim essentially requires a court to look at what we can call Travel Ban 3.0, um, look, uh, look at it on its face, and uh, conclude that there's no indication on its face that um, the that this ban is somehow discriminatory on the basis of religion, but then to take a step back and say, okay, well, what about underneath what's on the plain uh, what's what uh, underneath the plain text? In other words, is the 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 text of the travel ban is it pretextual? And is what is actually going on here is an intent? excuse me, by the government to discriminate in, in some way on the basis of religion. Um, this is a very new problem that implicates a very old set of issues that face the courts, which is how do you how do you do this sort of analysis? How do you figure out what the intent of the government was um, in a manner that isn't reflected on the face of some sort of governmental action? Um, in this particular case, the plaintiffs are uh, bringing in evidence of things that, for example, uh, President Trump has said related to the travel ban. Um, they've brought up uh, things that President Trump said uh, when he was campaigning for office. And their argument essentially is that even though the 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 travel ban itself is facially neutral when it comes to, for example, um, its applicability to people who are uh, Muslim versus people who are not Muslim. Uh, that is uh, that is a facade, and underneath it is a desire to dis discriminate on the basis of religion. So that is what the court is being asked to do. Um, generally speaking, the Supreme Court is pretty reluctant to engage in this sort of analysis, and there is not a clear precedent for it doing it, doing that sort of analysis when it comes to um, an executive order or pro proclamation. And so in order to decide for the plaintiffs on this ground, the Supreme Court is going to have to do a sort of analysis that it hasn't done before. And generally speaking, the Supreme Court is reluctant to do that sort of thing. Um, so the, you know, the odds are in that respect that uh, the Supreme Court is, is going to be reluctant to decide this case on Establishment Clause grounds. Um, that being said, the fact that the Supreme Court asked for briefing on that question makes clear that it's taking it very seriously. Many thanks for that. Josh, your uh, brief thoughts about how the Supreme Court is likely to decide the travel ban case. You've written about that 
in your piece, the Supreme Court tips its hand on Travel Ban 3.0 in lawfare. And then please tee up for us, if you will, the legal issues involving uh, DACA. Uh, uh, the Trump administration recently asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on the planned shutdown of DACA. That raises important uh, questions of administrative uh, and other law that you've written about. So tell us about the legal issues in DACA. Sure. Um, on the Roberts Court, the last decade or so, um, when the Supreme Court is asked to intervene in a case, what's called an emergency stay, when the court grants a stay, in almost every case but one, the court reverses. Um, to say this a little more bluntly, when Justice Kennedy signals that he wants to put a lower court decision on hold, that is, he grants a stay, in almost every case but one that I found, he eventually voted to reverse. Um, this tells me, this signals to me, that at least the majority of the court that granted the stay and allowed the order to into effect in part is okay in reversing the Court of Appeals. Maybe not entirely, but in part. So I think President Trump will get some sort of, of victory here. Um, I could bore you with the statutory arguments, which I've regaled people for months, but to grossly summarize, the Congress has given the President statutory authority to deny entry. This is a very broad grant of authority. The President has his own independent basis with called Article II authority, and when you combine the President's Article II authority with the statutory authority, the president's acting at his peak, one of our favorite cases, Youngstown with Justice Jackson. Um, in, this, in this zone, this, 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 this first tier of Youngstown, the room for courts to scrutinize executive action is very light, very deferential. Uh, concerning the Establishment Clause, my position is a little bit different. The Establishment Clause doesn't apply in the context of foreign policy and uh, immigration. Uh, it's not for our community. Uh, there are lots of instances where immigration law considers religion in a way that would be unconstitutional domestically. For example, we give visas, special expedited visas, to members of the of the cloth, the priests. Uh, if the United States gave some benefit like that to, to priests specifically, uh, and not other types of religious ministers, it would be unconstitutional in its face. Uh, we've had this statute for decades. Uh, we've had statutes that give preferences to Soviet Jews and evangelicals. Uh, again, facially unconstitutional for domestic matters. Uh, but no one ever questioned it. So I, I actually think the court would just dump this and say, we're not going to apply the establishment clause abroad. Tweet be damned. Now, moving on to the second part of your question, uh, this is a very, very tricky case, and let me walk you through it. Um, in 2010, after Congress refused to pass the DREAM Act, this would have given a pathway to citizenship for the DREAMers, President Obama's administration announced DACA, D-A-C-A, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, uh, this policy of the last you know, five or six years has given 700,000 DREAMers um, not citizenship, but what's called lawful presence. That is, they're here, they can work, they can uh, uh, receive various federal benefits, uh, but they're not citizens, they can't vote, they can't do other sorts of things. When President Trump came into office, uh, he initially kept DACA in place, but after an uh, ultimatum from Texas, Texas said, either repeal this, we're going to sue you, uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, recommended that the policy rescinded. And he said, we're rescinding this because it's illegal and indeed a violation of the constitutional oath of office. Uh, about a week ago, a judge in San Francisco issued a nationwide injunction saying that President Trump cannot uh, uh, roll back this Obama era policy. The Supreme Court took the unusual step of appealing it directly to the Supreme Court. They skipped the Court of Appeals altogether. And today, this morning, breaking news, the Supreme Court expedited the briefing. 
if the court goes along with the government's recommendation, it will be heard this term, probably in April, maybe even early May, and we can get a resolution this year. But there's no guarantee the court moves quite that quickly. Uh, thanks for that walking us through so well. Um, Lisa, as Josh says, the DACA case is complicated. Much of it turns on questions of administrative law, namely whether the Trump administration acted arbitrary and capriciously in trying to rescind the Obama administration's construction of immigration law. Uh, given the fact that uh, executives usually have uh, discretion to construe the law when it's unclear, uh, do you believe that the president acted arbitrary and capriciously, and, and how will the Supreme Court evaluate this case? Yeah, so, um so in this particular case, in the DACA case, um, the the governmental entity who that that on the one hand um, instituted the DACA program and then recently uh, rescinded it, the governmental entity was the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Homeland Security. Security is an agency uh, which is created by Congress, and um, its ability to act is limited by those congressional grants of authority. Um, so stated otherwise, when an agency like Department of Homeland Security or DHS, whenever it does something, um, it needs to make sure that it's staying within the bounds that are created by Congress. Uh, any action it takes has to be authorized by law, and also it cannot be inconsistent with law. Um, and so what this translates into uh, is this bedrock principle of administrative law, which says that when an agency acts, it can't do so arbitrarily. Um, and in many circumstances, what this then means is that um, an agency's action can be challenged in court, and it's up for a court to a court then to conclude whether the agency has identified some legally uh, adequate justification for its action on the one hand, or whether on the other hand, uh, the, the agency has acted arbitrarily. So in this case, um, the DHS decided to rescind the DACA memo, to rescind the DACA program. Um, and in terms of giving a justification for this, it said, we are rescinding this program because we've concluded that DACA is illegal. Now, plaintiffs brought this before the court, and plaintiffs' argument to the court was, look, whether or not DHS can rescind this program is one question. But another question is, can DHS rescind this program for the reason that it was illegal when it was first implemented in 2012? And that's what the court looked at in this case. And the court concluded that um, uh, DHS was wrong to have concluded that DACA originally was illegal, and therefore that DHS did not have a legally adequate reason for rescinding it in 2017. Um, this is a, uh, a persuasive argument. Um, it, it is uh, ultimately uh, premised on the conclusion that the original program in 2012 was legal, was permissible. Um, and that's, again, another sort of complicated uh, legal discussion that we can have uh, if we have time. Um, but in terms of the court's logic that an administrative agency has to have a legally adequate justification for taking an action like this, that's a strong argument. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, it's now time to turn to the question of the Constitution and the administrative state. Not all constitutional questions are resolved in the courts. And Josh, in your column for National Review, Is Trump Restoring Separation of Powers? You say that uh, executive power is often a one-way ratchet. 
Um, but the three planks of the Trumpian constitution, delegation, due process, and deference are remarkable because they do the exact opposite by ratcheting down the president's authority. Describe to us the ways that you think that President Trump from the executive branch is transforming the administrative state and is he succeeding in implementing his constitutional vision? Well, thank you for the question, Jeff. Um, the, the article you, you mentioned I wrote following the Federal Society's National Lawyers Convention in November. Uh, there were a number of remarkable speeches, the Attorney General Sessions, uh, Secretary Pruitt, uh, as well as Don McGahn, who's the White House um, uh, uh, counsel. And a consistent message that they conveyed uh, was that the executive branch wanted to uh, weaken its own authority in terms of three concepts, uh, delegation, due process, and deference. I refer to these as the three planks of the Trumpian Constitution. Uh, whether Donald Trump himself has adopted these, I don't know. Uh, but at least those who are speaking on behalf articulate these positions quite well. Uh, the first plank, delegation, uh, uh, means that Congress should be more specific when they give it authority to the executive branch. They shouldn't just give a blank check of power to the presidency. Um, this is a strange argument because if Congress, in fact, made more specific statutes, the presidency would weaken. Um, the second plank, what I call due process, uh, makes sure that people have notice when the government's about to take some action. One of the common criticisms of the Obama presidency is that uh, the government would often take action through uh, uh, guidance documents, blog posts, and other sorts of things, uh, and the people didn't have fair notice of what the law required of them. So the Sessions Justice Department said we will no longer make legal judgments in these policy guidance, so we take formal actions. And the third one, what's known as deference, is a, is a raging debate among administrative law scholars. To what extent should courts defer to the actions of administrative agencies? Uh, there's something called the Chevron Doctrine, which generally says if, a, if Congress drafts an ambiguous statute, um, courts should defer to a reading by an agency of that statute that's reasonable. And we call it debate what reasonable means, but it, in many respects, means a blank check, a rubber stamp, if you will. Not always, but often it does. And uh, uh, the Chevron Doctrine works to the president's advantage. The president loves Chevron. Ronald Reagan loves Chevron. Uh, but now you have people in the Trump administration saying, we don't want Chevron, we want courts to be more assertive. Uh, all these elements, delegation, due process, and deference, would have the effect of weakening uh, the executive in the long run. So I thought it was remarkable the executive extolling this. Now, whether they follow through and actually do this, I'll, I'll hold judgment. But the, the idea is something that's quite significant. Many thanks for that. Lisa, um, setting aside the question of whether you think it's a good or bad idea, uh, does President Trump have the authority to transform the scope of the administrative state in the way that Josh has described? And and will he be successful in doing so? And, and will this be a significant part of his constitutional legacy? Well, I, you know, I think that's a great question because uh, it goes to who has created the administrative state and then who uh, binds it. And the answer to that is Congress. Um, and I'm not sure that I would agree that uh, with the with the the conclusion that um, President Trump's administration, generally speaking, is reducing the power of the executive. Um, when it comes to the administrative state, uh, there's many things that um, uh, President Trump and his administration have done uh, that suggests uh, a more aggressive um, uh, 
treatment of uh, administrative power. Um, so, for example, um, President Trump issued an executive order called the One In, Two Out Order, uh, which suggested that um, regulations going forward, for every one regulation that an administrative agency promulgates, the administration, administrative agency uh, should then rescind to other orders. Um, and that is not something that Congress told these agencies to do. Rather, that is a, um, a set of rules that uh, President Trump uh, developed himself or, or with his advisors and then is, is, is imposing on the agencies. And again, to the extent that the agencies are created by and governed by congressional statute, um, that's exerting control over the agencies in a way that um, at, a, at a minimum is in tension with what Congress wanted and, and depending on how it's rolled out is actually in conflict with what Congress wanted. Um, and I, I would also uh, say just on two, um, a couple other fronts, I'm not sure, again, I agree with the, the conclusion that, that President Trump is, is reigning in the executive branch. Um, there's also arguments uh, that some of what the executive branch has done um, has been done for reasons that lie outside the relevant statutes. So, for example, in the DACA case, uh, the rescission of DACA, there's an argument that the reason why the administration uh, rescinded the DACA program was to be able to use it as a bargaining chip in future legislative uh, arguments over you know, uh, negotiations legislatively. To the extent that the, that political uh, motivation was what encouraged uh, the Department of Han Homeland Security to rescind DACA, that again falls outside of what Congress wanted DHS to be doing. That's not the sort of um, motivation that, that Congress has, has designed this agency to, to take into account. Um, two final things, just very quickly. Um, on the federalism front, um, the Trump administration has done a number of things to uh, push back on states' rights. Um, for example, in the context of marijuana policy, also in the context of immigration and jurisdictions' desires to be uh, so-called sanctuary cities or sanctuary jurisdictions, uh, President Trump has um, overseen a, an executive branch that is really pushing back on that, which again, I think is inconsistent with the idea that he's reining the branch in generally. And then finally, in foreign affairs, you have, uh, for example, the decision to, to bomb Syria. Um, I don't know that President Trump's or his administration really even uh, offered a legal justification for that, but instead um, uh, took that action sort of under the premise that, that this expansion of ex executive power was, was legally permissible. Thanks so much for that. Uh, well, our uh, final uh, substantive topic is the Mueller investigation. There have been many statutory and constitutional questions uh, that we've discussed on this podcast already, ranging from limits on the president's power to fire his officers to the possibility of presidential self-pardons. Josh, as you look at the past year and look forward to the next one, which constitutional questions connected to the Mueller decision do you think are most uh, salient and interesting, and, and how do you think they should be resolved? Well, I, I think the, the idea that Robert Mueller is going to indict or move to indict Donald Trump is a pipe dream. Um, it's simply not going to happen. There are really significant political forces prevent that. The bigger question is what happens if the Democrats take the House in 2018? How quickly do they bring articles of impeachment? Um, now, there's the, the political question, do they really want to spend two years impeaching the president when there's a 0% chance the Senate will uh, uh, convict him? Fine. But if, he, if, if the Senate does, I'm sorry, if the House does approve his articles of impeachment, 
it only takes a majority vote, then it goes to the Senate, which holds a trial, which we saw with the Clinton administration, and Chief Justice Roberts will have to dust off his robe and go preside across the street. Um, and this raises a very, very difficult question that I blogged about some length about what are the limits on Congress's powers of impeachment. Um, I don't accept the Jerry Ford line that impeachment is whatever the president says it is and the Senate says it is. I reject that. I think that's silly. Members of Congress take an oath to the Constitution the same way judges do. But the tougher question is, does Donald Trump have a defense to a claim that his removal at uh, uh, Sessions, I'm sorry, Sessions of Mueller was illegal? Now, I've developed this in the lawfare blog a bit, uh, but Trump has actually told us what his defense is. He said that, that, that the investigation by Robert Mueller was interfering with his foreign affairs power, that it was getting in the way of his ability to uh, 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 negotiate deals with Russia and other countries because of this constant investigation. Uh, when, when, when Mueller was fired, they initially had this bogus reason of a Hillary email, whatever. Uh, but then they quickly said it was also part of the president's authority to manage international relations. This may sound like a crazy argument, but the Supreme Court has recognized that in the sphere of foreign affairs, the president has a lot of latitude. And by the same extent, I don't think Congress could pass a statute regulating the president's relations. I don't think they can do the same through an impeachment trial. So I think there's a valid affirmative defense to the uh, uh, to the charge of obstruction of justice. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me, and this is litigated in the Senate, uh, but this is a fight that I think we'll have to wage very soon uh, if, if the Democrats do take the, uh, to take the House in 2018. Many thanks for that. Uh, uh, what are your uh, thoughts about the constitutional issues uh, that the Mueller investigation raised and how they might be resolved? So there are any number of constitutional issues that the investigation might raise. Um, for example, if uh, the uh, investigators want certain information and President Trump or others refuse to turn it over, um, we have some precedent for that when uh, President Nixon refused to turn over information and that, that case went up to the United States Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said that um, President Nixon was uh, in fact, required to turn over the, the relevant information. Um, there could also be constitutional uh, questions if President Trump tries to fire uh, uh, Mueller. Um, there could be uh, constitutional questions, as uh, Josh points out, if um, uh, there are impeachment proceedings or, or the like, and there's some sort of legal argumentation associated with uh, whether, the, whether the charges at issue, in fact, constitute the sort of um, uh, crime that the Constitution uh, specifies uh, could be adequate for those those impeachment proceedings. Um, that being said, when it comes to this, this third category of question, there's a famous quote uh, that I'll paraphrase that, that came out of the Supreme, one of the Supreme Court justices um, who said uh, something along the lines of, uh, we, uh, here at the Supreme Court, uh, we are not final because we're right, and said we're right because we're final. And so um, if, it got, if, it, if it were to get to the point where uh, there was an impeachment proceeding against President Trump, um, at the outset I should say that it would be unprecedented in terms of our country's history uh, for, for us to get to the point of conviction. That's something that has never happened in this country, for a president to be impeached and then convicted and removed from office. But if we had in, uh, the, uh, the unprecedented uh, situation where that were to occur, um, I'm not sure that these legal arguments would really make too much of a difference. Um, and that's because if the Senate were to convict uh, President Trump for some sort of uh, crime that the uh, House impeached him for, I mean, that would be the final word for it in the absence of something like, a, 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 frankly, a coup or, or whatnot. So um, in terms of the way our constitutional structure works, if the House votes to impeach and the Senate convicts, uh, that's the end of the story.
No, thanks so much for that. Um, one one final question, and then we'll have closing arguments. Uh, Josh, uh, whatever you think of the Trump presidency, it has been a bonanza for constitutional debate, <laughs> and scholars and citizens across the land are debating the Constitution, which is a wonderful thing. Law professors are teaching courses with titles like Trump and the Constitution. Um, do you uh, believe that uh, President Trump has been transgressing uh, constitutional norms uh, to a degree unusual uh, to other presidents, or do you attribute the robust constitutional debate that we've been seeing uh, to other causes? Uh, well, I can say that Donald Trump has been a full-time employment actor for law professors, without a doubt. Uh, 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 second, uh, I'm not a fan of most of Trump's policies. Um, I, I don't like the travel ban. I think his sanctuary city policies are awful. I think his marijuana policy is a is a step backwards as a matter of policy. Um, but that's all policy. Uh, I've actually been struck by, uh, in certain regards, how closely they've hewed uh, to the rule of law. Um, I think the the marijuana policy uh, of the Obama administration is unconstitutional. Uh, I think the travel ban is awful. It is is uh, a lawful in the president's authority. Um, I think the Syria example that Lisa mentioned earlier is, is actually a very troubling one because uh, there's no authority given there. But then again, we, we bombed the, the, the daylights of Libya for uh, years uh, during the Obama presidency. Uh, so the the bottom line is, I don't think Trump has been as bad as I thought he was going to be. He's done some bad stuff. Uh, he's transgressed. Um, it's been in a different way than the Obama presidency. The Obama presidency was very legalistic. They have criminal memos and explanations for why they were staying within the lines. I think a lot of those memos were, were rather silly. Uh, for example, the Libya policy, but they had memos. Uh, Trump is doing things his, his own way. Um, where Trump has differed is his Twitter account. Uh, if Trump would simply shut up and stop tweeting, uh, I think he'd be a fairly effective president uh, uh, in, in ways that uh, you know, perhaps Reagan or Bush 41 or Bush 43 were, uh, but he keeps saying things that courts keep using to enjoin him. Um, nothing will get him to stop tweeting. So I don't think we can simply stop that. He's the president. Um, but I, my worst fear is having come to fruition with sort of things I thought would happen. Um, his administration, I think, for the most part, tries to follow the rule of law. Um, and I think the Supreme Court ultimately vindicate him on at least two of those, which is DACA and the, um, uh, and the travel ban. Uh, Lisa, uh, your thoughts about whether President Trump has violated constitutional norms or is in tune with his predecessors? Um, so I think there's a question of what, excuse me, whether President Trump um, is himself in tune with his president, uh, pres uh, the prior presidents. Um, and then there's a question of whether the people who are working for the president are sort of in tune with this this constitutional tradition. Um, I think when it comes to the president himself, he has uh, suggested in a lot of ways that he is um, not as supportive, frankly, of the rule of law as prior president presidents, at least recent president uh, presidents have been. Um, his attacks on the courts. Um, are undermine um, the court's legitimacy in a way that prior attacks on the courts by presidents have not. Um, he has criticized specific judges. He has suggested that um, the courts uh, shouldn't be deciding cases uh, because the judges are unelected. Um, and that's very troubling uh, when uh, you have a country that is that is premised on the rule of law. Um, 
he has also done other things like um, directed uh, or at least suggested that he wants to direct the Department of Justice to investigate his uh, political opponents in a way that undermines um, uh, the Department of Justice, the, the legitimacy of the Department of Justice. Um, he pardoned uh, the sheriff out of Arizona who had been subjected to a, um, a an order by a, a court, a, a contempt of court. Uh, conviction because the the sheriff was refusing to obey a court order uh, telling him to stop discriminating um, against uh, certain people. Um, again, these this sort of pattern of, of being resistant to law and being resistant to the um, to the boundaries posed by law is inconsistent with it's inconsistent with how uh, President Obama was with respect to the rule of law. It was inconsistent with how President both President Bush's were President Clinton. Recent pres presidents have not been hostile in this way to the rule of law. And I think it is very problematic when it comes to people who work for the president. Um, uh, I agree with uh, Josh that um, they are not displaying the same level of, at times, hostility to the rule of law that President Trump is. Wonderful. Uh, all right, it's time for closing arguments, and we'll have them uh, very briefly in just a few words. Uh, Josh, is President Trump a threat to the Constitution? Uh, not as big as a threat I thought he would be. Uh, I think for the most part, his idiotic tweets have gotten him in trouble, but haven't translated to policy. Um, more or less, the sorts of things he tweets about don't go anywhere. And the people surrounding him seem to keep him more or less in check. They would not want to be on that ship. But uh, uh, for the most part, he hasn't done a lot of the awful things he said he would have done. Thank you so much. And Lisa, last word to you. Is President Trump a threat to the Constitution? Um, yes, I think he is. I think it's fair to say he's a threat. Um, in his first year, he has pushed a lot of legal boundaries. Um, and this pushing of legal boundaries, even if he doesn't overstep them, this pushing puts a lot of pressure on the Constitution. Um, and some of this pressure has come from President Trump's attempts to in a sense, compel change on his own um, without waiting for Congress, without waiting for the regulatory process to unfold. Um, and the Constitution just makes it very hard for a president to enact change in this way. Um, and I should say that this was true when, when President Obama was in office as well, and it's now true again when President Trump is in office. Um, that being said, this particular president, President Trump, is also pushing a lot of legal boundaries uh, simply by refusing to comply with the uh, tradition, the legal tradition and the, 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 the tradition of presidential practices over the last years and decades. Um, he just refuses to exercise constraint. And uh, often he really will take the opposite approach. For example, when he rolled out his first travel ban, in a really rushed way without adequate process. Uh, when he made his announcements about uh, the change to the, uh, the military's policy relating to transgender troops, he did it through tweets. Um, and you know, he has repeatedly, outside of litigation, suggested that impermissible motivations are motivating uh, the policies that his administration is enacting. Um, this refusal to comply with a more traditional, a more presidential way of doing things itself poses difficult legal problems. So what this all this legal boundary pushing does is it puts a bunch of it puts a significant pressure on the courts to, in a sense, clean it up and to figure it out. And um, while our courts are set up to handle this sort of uh, these sort of legal questions, the political pressure that's associated with that, it is really problematic. Um, it's just it's problematic in a democracy, frankly, for the courts to be in the news this much. 
Thank you so much, Josh Blackman and Lisa Mannheim, for an illuminating, civil, and vigorous discussion of President Trump and the Constitution. Josh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Nugana Etze. Here's the big ask for today's podcast. Please rate us on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do so they can become constitutional learners as well. And please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast apps. So Live at America's Town Hall is the feed of all of our phenomenal traveling town hall debates. We've had such good ones recently in D.C. on the Carpenter digital privacy case. We're about to go to Chicago to debate the future of free speech. If you listen to Live at America's Town Hall, you can hear all of the Constitution Center's other great live constitutional content. Lawyers, alert! We're now offering CLE credit for Select America's Town Hall programs. You know how dull it is to watch those bad videos for CLE? Now you can watch great Constitution Center content and get credit for it at the same time. It's such a thrill and it'll also help support the Constitution Center's work. So visit our website, click debate and upcoming programs for more information and stay tuned for on-demand courses as well. So that's a revenue opportunity to support the Constitution Center but you all know the importance of philanthropic support because despite that congressional charter that now our listeners are reciting back to their professors uh, as a sign of their devotion to our catechism, we don't get any meaningful government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by this nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. So please consider becoming a member signaling your devotion to this community of lifelong learning, visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.